Hello and welcome to our third episode of Things I Read for My Girlfriend to Fall Asleep, a podcast kind of thing where I read some relatively boring articles, journals, uh, to lull my girlfriend into sleep wherever she may be. Uh, if you're not my girlfriend and are listening to this, thank you for joining us and I hope this podcast can be of some use to you as well. Tonight's reading comes from the Paris Review, an online blog source, I think, uh, that has a column titled Sleep Aid, which is exactly for this purpose. So I've never read this before, so we'll see how it goes. The article is titled The Dates of Variously Shaped Shields. It seems necessary, by way of introduction, to say a few words on the circular convex shields used from very early times by our Saxon and Norman ancestors. These were of wood, with a central boss of bronze, and were sometimes of very large size, frequently, if we may judge from contemporaneous illuminations, as much as four feet in diameter. Across the inside of the boss, a handle was fixed, and the shields, which were thus held out almost at arm's length, as represented in many ancient MSS, must have been most cumbersome. It is hard to see how the sword or lance could have been conveniently used. The round shape must have interfered greatly with the view of one's opponent, and a bungler would have inevitably sliced pieces from off his own shield while attacking his enemy. Moreover, such shields must have been lightly made. We know exactly how the bosses were fastened with rivets through the shield, for they are constantly found in Anglo-Saxon grave mounds, and the wood is thus known to have been of some thickness but we can obtain from contemporary writings many more particulars. By the laws of Gula, said to have been established by Hakon the Good, who died in 963, any possessor of six marks was required to furnish himself with a red shield of two boards in thickness, a spear, and an axe or a sword. In the history of the same king, he is thus described from the Heimskringla, volume 1, page 155, he put on his tunic of mail, girded round him his sword called Kernbit, and set on his head his gilded helmet. He took a spear in his hand and hung his shield by his side. Again, in the same book, in the description of the Battle of Stiklestad, where Olaf, king of Norway, called the Saint, was slain in the year 1030, the monarch is said to have worn a golden helmet, a white shield, a golden, hinted, and exceedingly sharp sword, and a tunic of ringed mail. Again, in the Eddard Gunnar, one of the Reguli of Germany says, My helmet and my white shield come from the Hall of Kiers. These quotations are hardly sufficient evidence of it, perhaps, but it seems as if in the 10th century white shields were borne by leaders and red ones by the common soldiers, everyone who possessed six marks. Supplementing these and completing our description, Saxon poetry tells us that the wood was by preference the lime tree, I need not give quotations. They will be found in the several works on ancient arms and armor. Beowulf, line 5215, describes how Wiglaf seized his shield, the yellow linden wood. Again, these lines occur in the poem of Judith. The warriors marched, the chieftains to the war, 
protected with targets with arched linden shields. It almost seems as if linden trees were cultivated with this view, for the Saxon Chronicle, under Anno 937, tells us how King Athelstan and his heroes, quote, the board walls clove and hewed the war lindens. But certainly, on one occasion, remains of oak timber were found in connection with the bronze boss of an Anglo-Saxon shield. Occasionally, rims of metal have been found with such remains, but such protecting edgings do not seem to have been the usual custom. The laws of Gula, quoted above, mention two boards in thickness, that is, glued crossways, to prevent warping or splitting. Such a formation in a convex shield would show a very great amount of skill in the working of wood at this early date. Leather seems to have been sometimes stretched over the shield, because the laws of Athelstan forbade the use of sheepskins for the purpose, under a penalty of 30 s, whatever that is, a very large sum. Had skin coverings been common, remains of such skins would have been found still attached inside the bronze bosses, but only one skin-covered shield has been found at Linton Heath in Cambridgeshire, and in that, the skin covered the boss also, having been stretched over the whole shield. Lastly, red seems to have been at least a favorite color, for Soman's Edda mentions a red shield with a golden border, and Giraldus de Bari says the Irish carried red shields in imitation of the Danes. The boss was often carried out into a sharp spike, and the shield could thus be used for offense as well as for protection. But perhaps such points were also found of use in stopping the cut of a sword, which might otherwise slip down the shield and find a resting place in the leg or some other exposed part. We shall see as we proceed that such circular shields or targets constantly appear till the middle of the 17th century, worn by foot soldiers with pikes, halberds, and swords, and sometimes as large as two feet in diameter. Frequently, foot soldiers are represented with a small target, 10 or 12 inches in diameter, wherewith to receive their opponent's cut, while the other arm wields a huge broadsword. Such were in later times called targeteers. Their small targets were hooked to the side when not in use, and one is represented in 1473, which projects to a point, while others are flat and studded with nails, or otherwise ornamented, such as appearing among the Scotch and Irish till a much later date. Small shields of a square form and 10 inches square were used by fencers with rapiers in the 16th and 17th centuries. Such is a hasty sketch of the circular shields. They were used by all ranks of the Saxon nations, among whom, of course, were those we call Normans to the end of the 10th century. Fitness for the purposes of defense is the prime governing law in such matters. We see this lead to many alterations of shape in after centuries, and at the date at which we have now arrived, the first half of the 11th century, a perfect revolution in the appearance of shields took place within a space of about 50 years. Merrick explains how the Normans who were engaged in the conquest of Apulia in the southeast of Italy about the beginning of the 11th century learned there the advantages of long and narrow shields, such as were then in use among the Sicilians and states that about 50 years before the Battle of Hastings, they received from Mello, the chief of Bari, supplies of such vastly improved arms. The intimate relations with Normandy at that time, and under Edward the Confessor, led to their prompt adoption in England also, and hence, in the Bayou Tapestry, kite-shaped shields number three are universal among horse soldiers, both Anglo-Saxon and Norman. Some Saxon foot soldiers bear the old round shields, 
and one square-shaped one appears on that roll. There is a very amusing picture of Harold and his companions proceeding in company with William of Normandy to the conquest of Brittany. They came to the little river Coesnon, where, the tide being out, the riverbed was an expanse of slippery mud. The prudent ones dismounted and led their horses across, but one horse is represented coming down and the rider falling over his head, while his shield flies through the air, attached to his neck by the gige. This gige was another valuable improvement, which probably came from Sicily with the new shape of shields. It was a leather strap sufficiently long enough to let it hang from the neck, and so when two hands were required to wield a battle axe or heavy weapon, the shield could be flung loose and recovered again. I am aware that in one work from the early 11th century, a group of Saxon horsemen is represented on a journey, and the round shield of one hangs from his back, looking like the beehive which the knight in Alice in Wonderland thought might someday prove useful. It has, it will be seen, an absurdly awkward appearance. The principle, then, of the kite-shaped shields which we see in the 11th century was that, with as much compactness as possible, they should protect the body with the wider part, while the extended point was sufficient to defend the leg, and following so nearly the shape of the body of the knight that he had his sword arm free. They seem to have been five feet long, or even more, for they served as a bier whereon to carry away the slain or wounded. It is amusing to see Goliath represented on a kite-shaped shield, while the little David on top of him tries to wield his huge sword. This appears in a Latin Bible of 1170. A remarkable recrudescence of old ideas, both in the shapes and sizes of shields, occurs from time to time as we proceed. At times, they seem to have been nearly as much as five feet long, and then, as protective mail became more perfect, and probably the varying style of fighting required it, they were greatly reduced. King David and his followers appear on their expedition against Nabal in full mail of the end of the 13th century, with shields scarcely 18 inches long, just sufficient to prevent the point of a lance reaching some flat or dangerous or vulnerable spot from whence it would not readily glide off or to receive the blows of an assailant's sword. Nor can we suppose that one scale of size or indeed one exact shape of shield reigned universal at any one period. Every knight had his own fancies as to which best suited him, and at length we find many illuminations of the 16th century in which knights appear jousting and fighting without any shields at all. They were hung up to show the heraldry on their tents, and the massive body armor alone was considered sufficient protection. These few explanatory words are necessary to introduce upon the scene the various shaped shields occurring during the centuries which follow. While considering these variations, we must bear in mind that they are strongly marked into two great divisions. Before the 16th century, when shields were in actual use, and any alteration in their outline was considered to be an improvement to meet some freshly noticed want, this will be further referred to as instances occur. During and after the 16th century, shapes were selected in an arbitrary way, as a matter of taste alone, and hence earlier examples were sometimes exactly adopted while at other times details and alterations were introduced, just to suit the fancy of the purchaser or artist and the conventional style of the times. As reference for what has already been said, I would name the works of Meyrick and Hewitt, Conch's work on costume, Strutt's Horda, and a learned paper on shields by Sir Frederick Madden in Archaeologia, Volume 24. This, although primarily discussing the chessmen found in the island of Lewis, contains the results of wide researches 
as to shields in the 11th and 12th centuries. There's also a valuable and well-illustrated book, Scenes and Characters of the Middle Ages, by A.L. Cutts, published by Messrs. Virtue & Co., 1872. The principal authority for the accurate dating and classifying of shields is the immense number of medieval seals attached to deeds and charters and with dates exactly known. If it were practicable to arrange in chronological sequence illustrations of a sufficient number of these, we should at once have the classification of dates, styles, and shapes, which would be so very valuable, and which it is the attempt of this paper to display. Hence it is that to the end of the 15th century, seals form so large a part of the evidences submitted. The certainty of such records is unsurpassed. We have a parchment, itself dated, or the date of which in very early instances can be otherwise closely ascertained, and attached to this, we have a seal with the shield, and, to make it perfectly certain, we have the owner's name inscribed around it, and so we know he is not using someone else's seal, found or come down to him from earlier times. Such instances do frequently occur, and are at once in this way detected. There are instances where the same seal, acquired in early life, continued to be used for over 50 years, but that is the extent to which such valuable proofs can wander from the actual prevailing type and date. Besides seals, many invaluable illuminations in the British Museum and Bodleian Libraries, and in the Great Continental Libraries, furnish numberless pictures of knights and their accoutrements, contemporaneously executed, and with the most manifest exactness in every detail. Many of these have been engraved in our popular literature, as well as in the learned works named above. But to enable the minds to form correct conclusions, these should be all cut out and arranged in groups of exact dates, or drawn as they are in a student's notebook. The earlier monumental effigies afford many valuable examples of shields, and after they cease to be represented by the side of the figure, such often appear among the architectural details, giving the shape of shield with an exact date attached. Monumental brasses give evidence to a later date, and the canopy work introduced often carries ornamental shields. Architectural stone cravings frequently give data of great value. I need only refer to those put up in Westminster Abbey about 1260, which show the exact shape and proportions of some of the shields then used, and are represented as hangings by their geegs, from stone projections carved into various devices. But representations in stone and in stained glass, especially those of later date, seem to be greatly influenced by their surroundings, and cannot therefore be implicitly relied on as proofs of style and date. They are often found not to correspond exactly with other examples. Indeed, it is a curious fact, which all my fellow students will vouch for, that these two, stone and glass, seem of all materials most liable to err. The good name of many a respectable family has been ruined by the bend sinister introduced through the ignorant determination of some stone carver, while in glass, colors are altered and impaled shields have been turned round and so reversed, while in the particular subject under discussion, the exact shapes of shields which obtained at various dates, we find in both stone and glass that their shapes follow the necessities of the rest of the design and are made to fit into them. Printed books supply many shields from the end of the 15th century, showing the artistic taste in such matters which prevailed from that date to the present. Printers' marks begin still earlier, and are often contained in shields, but these usually show spirit of exaggeration, 
and convey the impression that such would not be found elsewhere, and hence they are not of much use to us in our present purpose of laying down exact dates. Grants of arms and bookplates come in to continue our information, giving shapes in the decorations surrounding them. Bookplates are usually efforts of art and taste at the dates when they were executed, and these two occur just at the time when other evidences fall short, and so they are peculiarly valuable. In the following remarks, I shall gladly avail myself of the new system of nomenclature devised and introduced by my friend, Mr. J. Paul Raylands. I welcome it as a most valuable desideratum, by means of which I hope to make my subject intelligible. Without such a system, a still greater number of illustrations would have been required, and I should like to bear my small testimony to its very great, and I expect, increasing usefulness. It is not everyone who has the ready hand to dash off the correct outline when seeking to communicate the style of a shield or a bookplate, and here we have a simple alphabet of shapes which can be read and understanded of all men, and which will certainly be found so convenient that it will come into general use.